let's get started. This is Fundraising Radio, and today we have an unusual episode with two speakers at once. First speaker is Margot Sullivan, venture partner at Syndicate 708 and a senior consultant at FMG Leading. And the second speaker is Amy Wood at Pepperdine Graziadio Business School. Sorry for my pronunciation, but this episode is going to be about mixing the theoretical knowledge and real life. So, Margot, let's get started with you. Can you give us some background on yourself and on Syndicate 708 and on FMG Leading? Sure. A little bit about my background. I started out my career in management consulting. I have an MBA from Pepperdine University. And one of the reasons I became involved in startups is because I got the chance to work at a unicorn startup from the time that they were very nascent and unknown until the time when they were very popular and had a $400 million valuation on their way to unicorn status. And so that really ignited my passion for not only startups, but for helping companies achieve the next level of growth, no matter where that inflection point might be. All right. Do you mind telling us what was that startup that you worked at? Oh, sure. It's called Riot Games, and they are definitely still going strong. That's awesome. So let's go to Emmy Wood. Emmy, can you give us some background on yourself? And I'm not quite sure if anyone needs some background on Pepperdine, but let's do that as well. <laughs> sure, happy to do that. Um, Amy Wood, and um, I work for Pepperdine Grazidio Business School um, in the Institute for Entrepreneurship. And um, I primarily run a program called Most Fundable Companies. It's a research project and it's a startup competition that we'll talk about a little bit more later. But what led me to where I am and what I do is um, I have always enjoyed working uh, in early stage companies and or um, doing in entrepreneurship. So I, I thrive. I'm an operator at heart. Um, my career started in the grocery retail industry. So I've worked in retail, managed warehouses, um, which is obviously focused on operations and logistics. Um, and then I um, worked for a startup doing grocery delivery actually at the end of the 90s. So <laughs> <laughs> during the first dot com and it's so interesting to see everything coming full circle 20 years later <laughs> um anyway and so uh, the opportunity came up uh, to work with the business school um, to help startups um, i i enjoy working as part of the school um, so do a lot of work i'm not a professor but i do a lot of work with students um, interested in entrepreneurship outside of the classroom um, and then the program that I run is not limited to Pepperdine startups. So. Got it. That's interesting. So you're mixing several projects. Uh, mm -hmm. Before we move on to discussing the uh, Syndicate 708 and the pitch competition that you and me are running, I wanted to talk a little bit about the differences between the theoretical knowledge that universities provide entrepreneurs and the real life lessons that Margot is going to tell us about. So let's talk about due diligence. Emmy, can you tell us about due diligence from the theoretical standpoint? So what 
are you teaching students at uh, Pepperdine? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're, we are teaching students, you know, as I mentioned, you know, you know, in the classroom, I'm not a professor, so I don't, I'm not currently doing that um, individually, but um, we obviously, um, you know, offer through courses, uh, opportunities for companies or students rather, um, to build their concepts um, and get feedback on those on those business concepts if they're thinking about starting a startup, and um, you know, and talk about the diligence process. Um, the the research that in the project that I run in the competition, um, it's actually interesting in that it's not a pitch competition. Um, so that is actually one of the things that um, you know we think differentiates um, both the competition and the educational process that founders go through as a result of participating um, because what we what we do is we put out online through um, in the format of a survey um, walk a founder through all the components of their business plan and highlight for them what an investor will want to know about their company as it pertains to that specific topic so for example um, you know, we we teach founders that yes, it's it's good that you have uh, you know maybe you have a board or maybe you have only have a some advisors, um, but who who they are is one thing, but also what they do for you and with you and why you have them involved with your company um, are areas that we delve into to say yeah you can you can say great you can put up the slide when you're in a pitch competition that says, here are all the great people. Yes, we have a board or yes, we have a set of advisors, but we really dig a bit deeper with, with mm -hmm. founders to, to, um, to go further into the what and the who and the why um, by way of just trying to educate people that there's, you know, the pitch is five, maybe you're, if you're lucky, you have 10 minutes, but there's, there's, there are actually hours of, um, back and forth and further exploration that you're going to engage in with a potential investor. Got it. That's interesting. So Margot here, I want to move on to your part and actually discover what's the difference between the education that you got and in the university and education that you got from real life. So you've graduated Pepperdine University and then you had a pretty impressive uh, background in finance. Can you tell us what are the major differences between what you learned in the university what you actually use in real life. Sure. I think one of the main differences is the motivations of the people on the teams. When I was at Pepperdine, everyone on a team really wanted to be there. Obviously we're paying to be there, right? <laughs> and so, or we had scholarships, but that was a lot of sweat equity to get in on a scholarship, let me tell you. <laughs> so the motivations in an academic setting are really ideal and pristine. And then when we graduate and enter the real world and start looking at deals and teams and people we've never met before, but they might have a really impressive tech, what we have to do is not only do this, this due diligence on the tech, but we also have to have a due diligence on the way in which the team works together. Because the only constant in the world of startup life is the ability to have a roller coaster emotional journey 
and a non-straight line between point A and proof point B. So I really like what Amy had said about the advisory team and the board of, directs, of directors. And for us, that really resonates because your board of directors or your advisory board, if you're early stage, which is the companies that we invest in, if you're an, an early stage company, you really have to have an advisory board that can help open the doors and get your first couple of customers. Because when you're in an academic environment, you can study for finance and you can study for that test and that exam. And as long as you study and do the work, the grade will appear. Once you get out into the real world, you can build a product, but the customer is not going to seek you out. And so your advisory team are the people who are going to open those doors for you. And the second part we found is that it's difficult to create financial projections. It is an important step. I am a believer in financial modeling. And I also know that I've seen beautiful financials. And what I've learned is that the team behind those, those financials, the team who's going to actually do the work, that's infinitely more important than a financial projection that looks very rosy. And in fact, we've noticed in our own work that unlike a SaaS-based model where you can have financials that go double, double, triple, triple, et cetera, we've noticed that the ramp up for deep tech companies and hardware-based companies is a little bit slower and longer because your sales cycle is a bit longer than in other forms of tech. So we really have to diligence the team, the tech, the financials, but also sometimes even the customers. Are these customers people who are really gonna be repeat customers or are these customers other startups which can inject a lot of risk into the situation? God, that's interesting. So let's actually move here to deal sourcing. So we'll compare deal sourcing of a venture uh, syndicate, so Syndicate 708, and then we'll compare it to the uh, deal sourcing of uh, Emmy's uh, pitch competition, which is not quite pitch competition. I forgot what you call it. <laughs> it's most fundable companies. Most fundable companies. All right. So let's start with how you, Margot, at uh, Syndicate 708 source for deals. Sure. We really believe in reciprocal deal flow. And one of the reasons it's a key pillar of our deal sourcing is because we need, obviously, to have a bit of help diligencing the deals. But we're also always curious to co-invest with a really strong lead who can help us with some of the more technical diligence. So if someone is really specialized in satellite launching and they are interested in this, and their network is going to be able to help that firm succeed, that makes it more interesting to us. And also, we believe in a shared ecosystem. And so we want to contribute to the community so that we can also benefit from it. There are some deals that we hear about that we would never pass on to another uh, friend or, or a colleague because we don't, we don't see the business model or we don't believe in the tech or we don't think the team is proven to be able to work as a team yet. 
So reciprocal deal sourcing is really helpful for us. We also look at other accelerators in the area. We have our accelerator side as well. And that helps us for the companies that don't have their minimum viable product yet. We can really get to know that team and see if we can help get them to that proof point so that they can then get customers and be ready for investment. Understood. So before we move on to Amy's part, can you, Marco, clarify what is a reciprocal deal flow? I'm not even sure if I pronounced that right. Sure, yes. That means we have a network of investors that we speak with regularly, and we talk to them about the problems that they're facing in the marketplace and the trends that they're seeing. And from those conversations, sometimes they'll say, oh, I know that you're in deep tech and right now you're looking at industrial manufacturing. Here's a really interesting company and either we're investing in it or maybe it's outside of our investment thesis because this term, we're really more focused on biotech, but we think that you should take a look at it. So it's this trusted network of people that can send deals to each other and receive deals from each other. Understood. That's interesting. I actually just interviewed the president of Tech Coast Angels of Orange County chapter, and he said that they have a huge network of other syndicates. I think he said like over 50 syndicates that they share deals with on a monthly basis. Like they throw out their um, couple deals that they like the most and that they want to fund. Do you participate in something like that? Or are you a part of something, uh, some, some big network like this? Yes. Yes. Tech Coast Angels are friends of ours. Um, one of our board members, Ellen, is actually really, really active in the San Diego chapter of Tech Coast Angels. And we also have worked with different corporate venture arms who are interested in either getting deals from us or working with us, especially in the aerospace and defense industry. So we definitely have a lot of a large network of people that we can work with. So again, and also Pepperdine. <laughs> <laughs> right. So before we go back to Pepperdine, I have one last follow-up question for you, Marco. You said that you're working in biotech, and then you mentioned uh, air defense. So you're generalist investor. You're not focusing on some specific field. We focus in deep tech. However, our focus depends on our network of investors, especially for the investment syndicate portion of our business. So if our investors are really interested in industrial manufacturing, we will, we will tend to go that way. Some of our investors go in and out of biotech. So biotech was a warm area of deal flow for a couple of years. Now that has receded a bit. It'll be interesting to see whether that heats up again, given current market conditions. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe in the ability of tech to help solve problems that can help humanity. And so we do also look, look for that. Although we can be generalists in deep tech, which is a niche area in and of itself, yeah. we also look for tools and platforms. So we might, not look for, we might not look for the specific, one specific item or one specific product, but we might look for a platform upon which a lot of other products can be, um, can be created or we might look at a pick and shovel methodology, which means we're not trying to just get the gold, we're selling the picks and shovels that other people will take to then create jobs and abundance within their own ecosystem. Got it. 
All right, now it's time for us to move to Amy's part. Amy, how do you source uh, the participants of that uh, most fundable startups? Is that what it's called? Yeah, most fundable companies. Ah, I was um, close. And <laughs> we'll get you there. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's 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 so great to hear, you know, Margot's comments because, you know, what she's summarizing is the 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 benefit and the strength of, of networks, right? Um, and I'll, I'll talk about my program specifically, but just even thinking right now in the current climate that we are in, um, I think, you know, and, and even going back to the comments about boards um, and advisors, um, lining up your network um, and utilizing networks for whether it's sources of funds or it's if you're on the, you know, if you're on the founder side, or it's, or it's deal flow if you're on the investor side. Um, you know, I think people are leaning um, on and uh, taking advantage of the, the network effect um, in, in really interesting ways right now. Um, and then, you know, I, I also, what I'm seeing just sort of generally is that, um, you know, the boundaries and sort of the, the old sort of paradigms about geography I'm seeing are being stretched right now, which I think is really good for founders because, um, you know, they're getting access to um, more opportunities to get in front of more people than I think they otherwise might, particularly early stage, which, you know, kind of early stage investing, you know, oftentimes is more geographically limited. Absolutely. So, um, so, so just switching gears over to, you know, my program, there are two, two primary reasons why people participate in the Pepperdine Most Fundable Companies. Um, the first is, um, again, because I, as I mentioned, you know, we're educating founders about the diligence process. If someone is a first-time founder, or perhaps they've, you know, they've been a founder before, but they haven't had to raise outside capital, um, and they want some exposure to what that process, the diligence process will entail, you know, we can do that with them in a in a risk-free way right there's no there's no cost there's no exposure mm -hmm. um, to the exploration aspect of what we do um and we don't we don't charge companies to do it you know i'm all for free resources um for for founders um so there's the there's a you know there's a large group um of people who participate just for that um regardless of how they do in the competition right it's the learning process it's the it's the exploration and it's trying to avoid making mistakes in in the real life in the real life examples right um and then the second reason is um if even if someone um has raised funds before because we do um we are a national program right any startup across the us can participate um, in 2019, last year, for example, we had over uh, 3,500 companies participate in our program. And in, in the end, ultimately, um, every October when we publish our list, last year of that 3,500, we published a list of 15 companies. So, you know, the, the selectivity and um, is, is good uh, for companies to participate. And then the exposure that we provide to them to potential customers, investors and partners um you know it's interesting we've we've seen examples all all examples um come to fruition so um if a company's fundraising or 
you know, whatever their customer um, or, or, or development pipe, pipeline looks like, if that lines up well with the October sort of fourth quarter timeframe, um, then um, there's good alignment there with our program for those founders. That's Q4, it. Q4 in 2020, who, you know, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of person. I uh -huh. think it's going to be great. Um, it's going to Hopefully. be, um, we can, we can transition into that. I, and go ahead, Constantine, I'll let you let you drive the conversation. <laughs> I was just saying, hopefully, hopefully it's going to be happy at the end. I'm, I'm not really a glass half full uh, person because I'm Russian, you know, we're not positive at all. But <laughs> yeah, before yeah. I get into the, the sad part, I actually want to, oh, never mind. I'm actually getting into the sad part. Let's talk a little about how founders miss the most uh, really valuable free opportunities. So I've seen many founders just jumping straight into fundraising before exercising free opportunities provided by, let's say, uh, small business administration uh, in the US specifically. Can you name three uh, resources that are free and that you think founders often miss? Let's start with Emmy. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great one. Um, so uh, one example I can think of um, and Margot uh, this is a local one um, and Margot supports it as well. Um, you know, we we participate in um, workshops. There are so many um, meetup groups. There are um, investors who hold, um, you know, um, workshops. Whether it's um, you know, it's a that aren't tied to any sort of competition. And I think there are good ways to number one, if you're if you're inexperienced, you can get you can get practice, um, and regardless if you if you're ready even for those sort of smaller venues people take notice um margo maybe you can share you know sort of your motivation for you know she and i have been on panels where we you know we just give feedback to to founders on on their pitches um we'll, we'll engage with them outside of the actual presentation um and or, you know do phone calls um just conversations but um you know they're there are so many local free um, events that people absolutely should take advantage of. Great. So, Margot, what's your point on this? Do you have a like small list of free resources that you would recommend founders to use? I would say I would actually echo Amy's point. There are so many different groups. I've been a couple of uh, I've been a part of a couple of them with Pepperdine actually. And then also I've been through a lot of other either meetup groups or some of the accelerators will have pitch events. And anytime you can get feedback from an advisor for free, that's a really good neutral third-party observer, an objective third-party observer. So this isn't a yes person who's best friends with the CEO and hoping that they will get to join the company at some point, right? <laughs> this is an advisor who actually has a point of view based on their own experience. And so for me, I've seen startups that really take some of that advice to heart. I think you can do that too much. You can ask 50 different advisors for an opinion on the same startup, and you will probably receive 50 different answers, oh, yeah. some of which will be very strong opinions in opposite directions, right? <laughs> so 
that that ability to take each opinion as a discrete point and synthesize those into trend lines is something that a lot of the more sophisticated entrepreneurs understand. And so the more of those discrete points you can get, the stronger those trend lines will be. So if one person tells you this aspect of your business is not is not really jiving well or that not really working well for me, that's interesting. But if another person starts to say it and then 20 or 30 more people start to mm -hmm. say it as you're speaking with people, then maybe that's some feedback that you should take to heart. Maybe there's a product market fit question that you could ask. And so I think that, I think that just feedback and feedback from the right sources, right? People who have experience in the area that you're going into is invaluable. Right. Um, so another, another example are schools, um, right? So um, whether it's, it's, it's a school that you're an alumni of or, or not, um, right? So they're a great resource for interns um, and whether, and sometimes those internships are paid or not, but, um, you know, so it may not fall in the free category, but it's probably discounted. And, um, you know, I think particularly in this environment right now, people's job offers are getting rescinded coming out of school. Um, so, and, and the opportunities are much more limited. So for founders who are looking um, for, you know, help um, with the company or, and, you know, whether that's um, as an intern or as, um, you know, to do any um, customer research um, to, to get any assistance with, you know, coming up with their MVP or their, or understanding their product market fit. Um, schools are a good resource for that. Um, the alumni network, um, if you are, you know, if it is a school that you're affiliated with, obviously, you know, there are a lot of alumni investor groups um, and, um, and and resources, you know, on campus and then across across the campus. And then, you know, resources for lab space, co-work space, um, you know, it's a great one. And again, I, you know, like my program, it's not specific to my, to Pepperdine. Um, a lot of schools have things that are open to the community. Got it. The, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, I think uh, students sometimes don't leverage even their own university's resources. And if we speak about someone who is not even at that university, they will definitely not even look at this, which I think is a huge mistake. Uh, I will definitely include the link to most fundable companies. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to Syndicate 708 so that all of you can take a look at this. But from myself, I want to add that I think many startup founders ignore a uh, thing that's a pretty good resource for any any business owner, which is small business administration. They help for free. They have great advisors. When I first uh, met one of the SBA uh, uh, workers, I thought it's like, oh, gosh, it's a government program in a startup field. Are you being serious right now? And, and then it turned out he's super smart. And then it turned out that actually one of our portfolio companies is using the help of SBA. So um, even if you think you're mature and you know everything and government can help you, it's, it's wrong. It can help you. <laughs> so let's move on here to yeah. the thing that that's, I tried to ask. Oh, keep, keep going. That's actually a great point. It's not, I don't consider it a free resource because it's very time intensive. Um, sure. But it is a source of non-dilutive funding, which is the SBIR, which is also known as America's Seed Fund. 
And so especially for deep tech companies where the MVP is not complete, we've helped a lot of our startups actually apply for funding from the government. And that helps you think in terms of what does your customer need, but it also gives money so that you can finish that MVP and then move on to the next phase of your business. And again, they don't take equity. So it's a non-dilutive funding source. It's not that easy to acquire, but it's a resource that you can have, especially in deep tech. Absolutely. That's, that's a good point. And I've never, to be quite honest, never heard of SBIR. So I'll definitely include a link to that as well in the episode. And by the way, for those of you who have never really heard of grants or have never looked into this topic, you can go down on uh, fundraising radio and there is an episode called Grants 101, which is absolutely great. And it's all about grants. So here I want to move on to our last topic. And it's the question that I try to ask every speaker of mine. And it's uh, three first steps that entrepreneurs should take to get the first check from an investor. Margot, let's start with you. Three steps entrepreneurs should take in order to get the check from investors. Yep. Step one is know the team, know the roles of the team, and know the status of the business and where you need to grow. So that type of team snapshot is really important because we see a lot of technical CEOs who want the idea of being a CEO, but they don't realize the work on the human side and on the people management side that comes along with that CEO title, mm -hmm. when it could be just as prestigious to think about what you might need for that next wave. And if you really need a salesperson, that's your CEO until you can afford to divert commission from revenue into a sales force, right? So it's really important that we lose the stigma of moving from a CEO to a CTO position if that helps propel the business forward. And if that takes a lot of stress off of that technical founder so that they can perform and be their best selves, creating the next iteration of the product. That's a good thing. Second, point. thanks. <laughs> Second is thinking about what the next proof point will be. And is this money from the investors going to get you there? Right now, in this current climate, we're seeing investors asking for about 18 months of runway. And so a lot of startups right now are cutting and refining to make sure that they can last through 18 months. And so really thinking about, am I raising enough? Am I being honest, intellectually honest with myself on how much everything is going to cost? And is there a plan in case we encounter headwinds so that we can elongate that runway to get us, navigate us past um, whatever comes through our way? So that's, I think, the second thing. And then the third which really probably should be number one <laughs> is customers. If you don't have any customers, it's thinking about how do I get customer one and thinking about what the customer actually wants, because your product probably won't last past customer one, right? It's going to change based on what that customer needs. Um, also the number of customers you have 
is inversely proportional to the amount of risk that your company has. So if you only have one customer, that's incredibly risky. But if your top, if your top five customers comprise 75% of your business, it's risky. It's not as risky as one. But what's even mm -hmm. better is if you have 75% of your revenue coming from a lot of different customers. So always be thinking about the path to increasing the number of customers. Because if you're going the venture capital route, then you have to have exponential growth. And for that, you need an exponential bump in revenue coupled with, and sometimes people forget this, growth in EBITDA. All right. So to clarify, EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, and de depreciation, I think. Was it depreciation or is it? Yes. Bam. Got it. <laughs> so Amy. That's the A. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I was close. So close. So Amy. Get you back, in, back in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> Amy, let's, let's, uh, now it's, it's, now it's your turn. You Three know, it's steps. so funny. Um, yeah, I'm going to, you put it well, Margot. Um, the first thing I wrote down was customers first. Um, you know, I, and I think, I think the, the focus on fundamentals um, is going to be heightened. Um, particularly in this environment um, in, in, in the foreseeable future. Um, so customers first and having your proof points and, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, if you don't have revenue, what are the proof points that you have that you can, that you're, you're going to obtain customers? And, and as Margot said, you know, you can do that in a profitable way and you know all the, all the steps through your, through your value chain to get there. Um, I guess the second one is, um, particularly right now, um, you know, the team is is huge, um, but prove that you're the right team. So I think it's it's being um, appropriate and open with communications with and, and being able to demonstrate that, whether that's with your investors, um, your customers, um, your teams. And, and, and being able to demonstrate the actions that, that you've taken as the leader of, of, of the business. Um, it's a chance for, for founders to prove that, you know, they're the right jockey, right? Um, and, and share what, what the, um, you know, the current climate has meant for the company, um, whether that's been a shift or it's an opportunity. Um, so being, I think, being very mindful about the stories and the, about the actions and what, what the company is undertaking right now um, is very important. I guess the third one um, is have patience. <laughs> um, because, and, and, you know, even outside of a, a, a slow environment, a difficult environment, um, I, you know, I heard someone once say, um, you know, no, actually doesn't really mean no, most of the time, it just means not now. Right. And so patience and resilience um, are, are, I know it's, it's hard. And but they're, I think we all, we're all having to practice it today. And um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be important for, for the foreseeable future. I love that word resilience, Amy. I wish we could teach all startups to have it. It's so important and it's difficult. Yeah. Can you clarify the word resilience for me, please? 
No, I'm being serious. I'm Russian. I, I literally don't know what that word means. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think it's your ability to um, endure, uh, overcome obstacles, um, and do that without, you know, in a in a in a productive way. Uh, All right. The exact definition of it, maybe. Uh, that's a good. Google that's it. a good enough definition. Yeah. I, it's yeah. in my vocabulary now. Now I learned so much stuff uh, about. <laughs> that EBITDA is amortization for an A. Uh, I learned the new word resilience. I hope many other listeners who are listening to this right now learn some more than that. <laughs> of course, I'm just kidding, but it was a great episode, really loved it. And to the point that Margot touched on, I think she touched on so something really important. I think that many startup founders, they think that if they started the company, they have to be the CEO of that company. I think that's completely wrong. Uh, and if you don't agree to that, you should probably check out Silicon Valley, the show. It has a very <laughs> valid point. I'm being serious. The show is really funny, first of all. And second of all, you can actually learn something about real life. Watch it and you'll you'll understand what we're talking about here. All right. We'll wrap it up here. Thank you, Margot. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for taking your time to participate on this and for, for sharing your experience and knowledge. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'll leave everybody with the official definition of resilience, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. That's probably I should name this episode resilience. <laughs> All right. We're going to end up this episode on this positive note and have a great day, everyone. Thank you. You too. Take care.